I want to thank Professor Davis uh, for, and others here at ASA for inviting me. My name is Casey Luskin. I'm Program Officer in Public Policy and Legal Affairs at the Discovery Institute. Uh, my background is both in the sciences and the law. I have a, hold a bachelor's and master's in earth sciences from University of California, San Diego, and a law degree from the University of San Diego. Um, it's a real honor to be here at ASA. This is my first ASA conference. I've had many friends and colleagues that have been to ASA before and have told me many great things about it. And my uh, regret is that this is my first time being here. I, I've heard about it, great things about it for so many years. My other regret is that I was not able to actually arrive at the conference until yesterday. However, my reasons for not being here I don't regret too much because I was on a week-long Alaskan cruise with my family. Uh, my parents took my wife and I on a cruise, and it was booked a long time ago. So, but in all seriousness, I do genuinely wish I could have been here for the whole conference and, uh, and regret not being able to do so. Um, I'm a very firm believer that the debate over evolution is another one of those many areas where reasonable people can and do disagree. And I understand that there are probably many in this room who might disagree with some of my own views, and that's okay. I just want to say thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's a true honor to be here, and I hope to have a good dialogue with many of you today, and, and thank you, uh, Professor Davis, for inviting me as well. Um, I think uh, one thing that my schedule won't permit is to go through everything that uh, Ted talked about. I've only got about 20 minutes, so I'm going to try to give you guys a feel for what is Discovery Institute's approach to science education, how do we approach the issue. I'm going to talk about the Dover case a little bit, and I'm sure we'll be able to get into some more of this uh, during the Q&A session after Sam Chen's talk. So um, one point that's initially worth making, and I think Ted Davis alluded to this, the Discovery Institute actually opposed Dover's ID policy. And it's been our policy at Discovery Institute since long before the Dover trial that we actually oppose mandating intelligent design in public schools. Um, it's not that we think that ID is not science. It's not that we think there's not enough to teach. We think there's plenty to teach when it comes to intelligent design. However, our priority with ID has always been to see it develop as a scientific theory and not to push into public schools and turn this into a political debate. We want the debate over ID to be a scientific one and not a political one. And we found that when it gets pushed into public schools, it tends to politicize the debate. And part of my job at Discovery is actually to provide legal defense to scientists and scholars who are facing persecution due to their views on evolution. And I can tell you firsthand that we saw an intense spike in the number of instances of persecution of pro-ID scientists and faculty in the wake of what the Dover School District did. And, it, and they actually ignored the advice that was given to them by my predecessor at Discovery, Seth Cooper. Um, I was not at Discovery when many of the, the early stages of the Dover uh, situation were going down. Uh, but my predecessor there uh, strongly urged Dover to not mandate ID, said that this was uh, a very unwise decision. And Discovery Institute opposed Dover's ID policy both before and after they passed it. So what do we recommend for science education? Well. Since our first involvement in a major public policy debate uh, in 2001 and 2002 in Ohio, our approach has been that students should be required to learn about the scientific strengths and weaknesses of neo-Darwinism, that schools should not mandate intelligent design, and that you should protect teacher academic freedom. And there's a number of benefits that I believe come from teaching the scientific controversy over evolution in this fashion. Excuse me, first schools learn more about evolution, not less. Uh, Eugenie Scott likes to say that uh, students don't learn enough about evolution and evolution education is being dumbed down. We very much agree with her, although I think that she would prefer that they learn more about only the pro-evolution viewpoint. We think that there is a lot about the pro-evolution viewpoint in the classroom, and that's a good thing. I absolutely think that students should learn about the pro uh, 
uh, evolutionary viewpoint. It's the mainstream uh, consensus paradigm of uh, biological origins today. Um, I went to public schools from kindergarten through the end of my master's degree and was uh, studied evolutionary biology extensively at the undergraduate and graduate levels. And I very strongly believe students should learn about the evidence for evolution. But uh, there's a lot of legitimate, credible scientific views out there that dissent from Darwinian evolution. And much of this is grounded in the mainstream peer-reviewed scientific literature. And we think students should have the opportunity to learn about those views as well. So teaching evolution in this fashion teaches students more about the facts of biology. It improves their critical thinking skills. It also increases student interest in science. And this is very important. Two of the most uh, major crises facing science education today, as identified by leading science education authorities, is that we're not inspiring sufficient numbers of students to get interested in pursuing careers in science. And I think if you want to squash student interest in science, one of the best ways to do that, to do that is to tell them that one of the most foundational questions of, of humanity, namely where we came from, is essentially fundamentally answered and that there's only one monolithic scientific view and that there's really no room for dissenting, scientifically speaking, from that viewpoint. Um, I can't think of a better way to sort of discourage students from being excited about one of the most foundational questions of where we came from. If you teach them there's a scientific controversy, you want to get interested, students interested in science, that's going to get them interested in science. It's also going to allow them to improve their critical thinking skills. You can use this topic as an opportunity to allow students to debate and discuss and wrestle with the evidence themselves and follow the evidence where it leads, because I think that's what science is supposed to do. So teaching evolution in this fashion, it trains true scientists who are open-minded and non-dogmatic thinkers. And it also diffuses a lot of the community controversy that is caused when evolution is taught. Uh, Ted Davis alluded to a lot of the controversy and the dissatisfaction that many Americans have with this issue. And I think that when you teach evolution in this fashion, um, it certainly diffuses that controversy. This approach is perfectly legal. Uh, in uh, the 1987 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Edwards versus Aguilar, the court uh, had a statement in dicta where they said, we do not imply that a legislature can never require that scientific critiques of prevailing scientific theories be taught. Uh, this is essentially a nod that, yes, it is permissible to teach le legitimate scientific criticisms of uh, leading paradigms, par paradigm uh, ideas like neo-Darwinian evolution. And I think that, uh, that there's a reason why we've never seen a lawsuit or court decision that has held that it is illegal to teach scientific criticisms of evolution. Um, I prepared this slide in response to a slide that Professor Davis did not end up using, um, uh, but I'll just uh, make a, a short point of this. Um, there is very wide bipartisan support for the view that schools should teach both the evidence for and against evolution. This is from a 2009 Zogby poll that found that 78% uh, of American likely voters agree that biology teachers should teach Darwin's theory of evolution, but also the scientific evidence against it. And this is significant in that uh, I think it's 78.5% um, of Democrats and 80.9% of self-identified independents agreed with that statement. So that obviously goes well beyond the stereotypical fundamentalist, right-wing, conservative, whatever you want to call it. Clearly, a lot of Americans feel that evolution should be taught in this objective fashion. And I think that uh, this is a politically viable common ground approach that really would satisfy the vast majority of Americans. Nine states have statewide policies that support this kind of an approach, um, and there have been no lawsuits in any of them. Those states include Texas, Minnesota, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Missouri, Alabama, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And I should qualify this. There have been no lawsuits over these specific policies. Obviously, there have been lawsuits in state like, states like Louisiana, 
But those are policies that taught creationism, not policies that simply required scientific critique of evolution. So I hope that this shares a little bit about Discovery Institute's approach to how this issue should be taught in public schools. Um, I want to turn now to the Dover case. I wrote a book called uh, Traipsing to Evolution, which covers this in a lot more detail. I'm not trying to sell books to you guys, but you actually want a free article uh, that has a more extensive discussion of the Dover case. You can go to the URL right there for a Larview article that we co-authored in Montana Larview a couple years ago that uh, is a more in-depth legal uh, critique of the Dover ruling. So let's talk a little bit about the Dover ruling. Um, of course, Judge Jones could have decided the case by simply finding that the Dover School Board had uh, religious motives, and he could have disposed of the case under the first prong of lemon test, which Sam Chen is going to uh, explain to you guys in a lot more detail in the next session, I believe. Um, however, he decided to go a lot further. Um, I guess one area where I would disagree with Professor Davis is that I don't feel that the Dover ruling was conservative, and actually some ID critics agree with me on that point. I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Um, instead, Judge Jones chose to rule on expansive questions on whether ID is science, and even uh, you know, scientific minutia, such as whether the type 3 secretory system can serve as a precursor to the bacterial flagellum, whether the fact that whales lack uh, blood clotting factor 11 is, uh, makes the blood clotting cascade in vertebrates irreducibly complex, or whether even uh, evolution conflicts with religious beliefs. He even went on to rule on that particular question. And I think it was an extremely expansive ruling, but I want to focus on some of Judge Jones's reasons for why ID is not science. And I would argue that each of the reasons he gave as to why ID is not science were either false or irrelevant to the question, or both. The first one is he said that uh, ID is not science because, quote, um, ID requires supernatural creation, unquote. Well, there's a problem with that claim, and that's that I usually thought good scholarship allows proponents to stake out their position. And then you can critique what a, what a proponent of an idea is saying. Instead of the Dover ruling, what Judge Jones did was he basically adopted the critics' version of intelligent design and then held that up and basically critiqued a straw man version of ID. So pro-ID expert witnesses like biologists Scott Minnick and Michael Behe made it very clear that ID does not require an appeal to the supernatural. They also made it very clear that they do believe the designers got. Um, people often will say, well, aren't ID proponents coy? And really, they believe the designers got, but they won't admit it. Well, ID proponents regularly acknowledge that their beliefs about the identity of the designer. I always make it a point when I speak to both religious and secular audiences to point out that I'm personally a Christian. And I believe the, the designer is the God of the Bible. Now, that's my personal religious belief. It's not a conclusion of ID, but um, I want to make that very clear. Um, likewise, Michael Behe testified to this effect during the, uh, the Dover ruling. He said, he was asked, so is it accurate for people to claim or to represent that intelligent design holds that the designer is God? Behe, no, that is completely inaccurate. Well, people have asked you your opinion as to who you believe the designer is. Is that correct? That's right. Has science answered that question? No, science has not done so. And I believe you had answered on occasion that you believe the designer is God. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that is correct. Are you making a scientific claim with that answer? No, I conclude that based upon philosophical and historical factors. So Judge Jones uh, apparently did not realize that ID proponents don't require one to have a specific belief about the identity of the designer. And some of the agnostic or even atheist proponents of ID that Ted Davis cited, I think, are evidence of that. Um, and uh, unfortunately, this distinction was lost on Judge Jones. Judge Jones also missed the distinction that ID is different from creationism. And I appreciate that Ted Davis understands uh, some, some very important parts of that difference. Um, ID does not start with the Bible. It starts with the data. 
and ID limits its conclusions to what can be learned through the scientific method and does not try to make conclusions about the identity or nature of the designer. I would also say that ID does not resemble creationism when you look at it up close um, and when you look at its tone up close. Um, ID is fully compatible with evolution so long as you define evolution as change over time or common ancestry, whereas creationism quite explicitly rejects common ancestry. The only really major difference that ID has with the neo-Darwinian paradigm is the claim that natural selection acting on random mutation is the driving force building the adaptive complexity of life. Um, does creationism reject that claim? Sure, absolutely it does. But so do structuralists and other materialist evolutionists like Lynn Margulis, who are most definitely not creationists. So rejecting the primacy of natural selection does not thereby turn you into a creationist. And I think that um, if you look at ID up close, there are some important differences there. And I also want to note that ID does not deny that natural selection is ever at work. Um, ID claims that natural selection is a very real force in nature, but just ID proponents have argued that scientifically speaking, it's limited in what it can accomplish. Um, Dr. Davis does try to link creationism through I would, what I would call, or try to link ID to creationism through what I would call guilt by association arguments, particularly when he notes that ID proponents have cooperated or allied themselves with creationists, um, or that there are creationists in the ID network. And, Here's my short response. So what? Uh, here's my longer response. Um, if you're going to make this argument, then we need to understand that it can cut also against evolution. In other words, what do we make of all the leading evolutionists who are atheists? Um, Eugenie Scott is a signer of the Third Humanist Manifesto and regularly speaks at secular humanist conventions. Barbara Forrest, who's on the board of the NCSC, is also on the board of the New Orleans Secular Humanist Association. And these individuals should have every right to engage in their atheistic, anti-religious activities if that's what they want to do without having that uh, smear or mar their scientific views. Um, indeed, polls show that evolutionary biologists tend to be atheists and evolution groups are full of uh, atheist members. A survey published in Nature in 1998 found that among NAS biologists, only 5.6 believed in God. And this trend continues. A 2007 poll by William Provine and Gregory Graffin at Cornell published in The Scientist found that 78% of evolutionary biologists surveyed were pure naturalists, and strikingly, only two of the 149 evolutionary biologists they surveyed described themselves as full theists. So my position, is: it, am I saying that one cannot believe in God and evolution or be evolution religious? Of course, that's not what I'm saying. My point is that guilt by association arguments cut both ways, and you have to ask the implications for evolution if you're gonna make these guilt by association arguments, whether it can remain science, in light of its many uh, associations and affiliations and cooperations with atheism. I strongly believe that evolution is a science. Um, and uh, my point here, however, is that the personal religious or anti-religious beliefs of uh, proponents of a theory have no bearing on whether that theory is science or scientifically correct. And again, Barbara Forrest and Richard Dawkins and Eugene Scott can do their atheist activities without having their scientific views challenged on those grounds. And I think the same goes for ID proponents and their personal religious or anti-religious activities. Um, now, the rejoinder in a venue like this might be that evolution does have atheistic associations, but it also has theistic associations, whereas ID is singularly associated with theism. But Professor Davis, uh, I think, actually did a great job of sort of uh, rebutting this common stereotype, that, uh, that uh, debate you saw where you had two atheists or agnostics that were defending intelligent design there most certainly are diversity of views within the ID movement on religion and even within Discovery Institute. I have non-religious colleagues at Discovery Institute who are ID proponents. Um, and so I think the bottom line is that some of the old stereotypes really are false and this issue is always more complex than we like to think it is. 
And I think that uh, I really personally have never heard of a non-arbitrary argument against ID, ID being science that does not also equally cut against evolution and disqualify it from being science when that argument is applied fairly. I think if we're, we're going to be fair, the cultural concerns of ID proponents are irrelevant to whether ID is science. And, uh, and since, since, since they're equal and opposite, cultural concerns are found amongst many supporters of evolution. Let's talk about those pre-publication drafts of the Pandas textbook. This textbook was written when I was playing Little League, and so it's certainly not something that I consider very relevant to the ID debate today. In fact, I never even heard of this uh, book until I was in a graduate seminar at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and we had to read it. Um, I'd read books by Dembski and, and, and Behe and other leading ID books, and I really think this book has very little to do with ID thinking today. Uh, but it was used in the Dover School District. Uh, Discovery Institute has never uh, suggested that it be used um, in public schools. But it was used in Dover, so I understand why the judge, the judge ruled on it. Unfortunately, he applied double standards and bought Robert Forrest's arguments that IDs, um, this basically this term-swapping conspiracy theory that uh, prior drafts of the Pandas and People textbook used creation terminology, but later drafts did not in a, an attempt to get around the Edwards versus Aguilar ruling. So I found this argument to be extremely unpersuasive and almost surreal. Um, in Edwards versus Aguilar, the U.S. Supreme Court found that creationism was religion because it referred to a, quote, quote supernatural creator. Um, yet long before Edwards, pre-publication drafts of pandas specifically rejected that view. For one of the examples, here's a pre-Edwards draft of pandas, which says, some master intellect is the creator of life. But such observable instances of information cannot tell us if the intellect behind them is natural or supernatural. This is not a question science can answer. Well, what did they just say? Well, first of all, they're essentially affirming methodological naturalism, that science cannot appeal to the supernatural. And that the published version of PANDAS makes very much the same statement. And the published version of PANDAS also um, explicitly devows a young earth or the global flood view and many of the young earth creationist tenets. So this is very different from creationism. Uh, young Earth, or even a general definition of creationism where it appeals to an explicitly supernatural creator. So I'd argue that um, the, the project of PANDAS lacked the very defining quality that caused creationism to be declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in Edwards. So why were the terms changed? Well, it's really simple. If you read uh, Charles Thaxton, who was the academic editor of PANDAS, who also wrote Mystery of Life's Origin, if you read his deposition testimony in, in the Dover trial, he explained that they changed the terminology not because they were trying to hide what they were doing and it was really creationism and they wanted to hide that. It's because they knew that what they were doing was different from creationism and they needed terminology to allow people to distinguish their project from creationism. So the terms were changed not because ID is the same as creationism, but because ID is, is fundamentally in a very important way different from creationism. So I would argue that um, those who are trying to fit ID into uh, creationism are trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Um, finally, another problem with the ruling is uh, that Judge Jones claimed that ID is merely a negative formulation against evolution. Uh, Scott Minnick, again, testified very much to the opposite effect. He argued that um, their ID uses a positive argument based upon finding in nature the types of complexity which in our experience come from intelligence. And he's arguing here that in our experience, when we find irreducibly complex systems, that that comes from an intelligent agent. So we find irreducible complexity in nature, that comes from an intelligent agent. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to close up with how ID uses the scientific method to make, it, make its claims, and I won't get into anything beyond what the Dover trial said. So um, how does ID use the positive, a positive scientific method to make its claims? Well, first, 
we observe that high levels of complex and specified information, or CSI, come from intelligence. ID then makes a hypothesis that, that life will contain high levels of CSI. We can then perform experiments and empirical research, knockout experiments or mutational sensitivity tests, uncover astronomical CSI in nature, and we conclude, of course, being tentative, like all good scientists subject to further data, we can tentatively conclude intelligent design as a conclusion. Um, and Judge Jones ruled that ID does not do testing or research, but again, uh, there was testimony to the exact opposite effect in the, in the trial. Scott Minnick talked about his own genetic knockout experiments on the bacterial flagellum, which find that it is irreducibly complex. And Minnick, by the way, it, uh, runs a lab at the University of Idaho um, where he studies the flagellum and has published on it extensively. So ID proponents absolutely are doing research. There's additional research that's been going on since the Dover trial at the Biologic Institute and William Dembski's and Robert Mark's uh, Evolutionary Informatics Lab. And, uh, and there's a new journal called Biocomplexity that's recently been started to publish ID-oriented uh, work. So uh, there certainly are ID publications and research. Um, some of these articles that uh, are peer-reviewed scientific articles that document pro-ID research were given to Judge Jones and documented to him during the trial, but he just ignored them and ruled in about five or so places that ID has no publications or research. Apparently, Judge Jones is a magician because he can just make these uh, publications disappear. Um, and there have been a number of articles published uh, both before and after the Dover trial. These are peer-reviewed pro-ID articles in mainstream scientific, article, uh, mainstream scientific journals by ID proponents that are arguing for ID. So um, uh, the claim that ID doesn't do research or is not publishing uh, scientific journal articles is simply not true. Sort of one of those myths that's been promoted by our critics. Um, I want to just close with this quote, um, and then I'll, I'll pass it on to Sam Chen. Uh, a lot of folks have said that uh, Judge Jones was justified in giving this expansive ruling. Um, I think that the Dover ruling is one of the least conservative rulings I've ever seen. Um, and actually, an anti-ID legal scholar, one of the most prominent anti-ID legal scholars out there, Jay Wexler, professor of law at Boston University, and a very nice guy, um, had the opportunity to meet him last year. He wrote that the part of Kitzmiller that finds ID not to be science is unnecessary, unconvincing, not particularly suited to the judicial role, and perhaps even dangerous to both science and to freedom of religion. And certainly he's not the only one who feels that Judge Jones did a very, very expansive ruling. So um, I'm going to end with that. Uh, if you have any questions, you're welcome to email me, and I look forward to the Q&A session. Thank you very much.